This is episode 282 with the author of eight books, certified running coach and author of the long-running Murphy's Lore column in Runner's World, Sam Murphy. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and this episode is for all the marathoners out there. Joining me is Sam Murphy, a coach and author who's been immersed in the running community for decades. We're exploring common marathon myths and half-truths that could potentially derail your training this upcoming season. If you want to have the best marathon training possible this year, this episode is for you. If you're new here, this show features training conversations, coaching calls, and experts in the running space to elevate your thinking about the sport. Because if you better understand the process of improvement, when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll be a much better runner. But Strength Running is not just a podcast. Don't miss our growing YouTube channel at youtube.com strengthrunning, or you can find me on Instagram at jasonfitz1. Our home base is strengthrunning.com. Since 2010, we've been helping runners around the world, no matter what your talent level might be, with our award-winning blog, our free email courses, and our suite of training programs to help you accomplish your biggest running goals. Learn more about those at strengthrunning.com coaching. And I'm very excited to introduce you to Prevenex. I have never partnered with a supplement company until now. That's because Prevenex is, in my view, the best. They only use the most bioavailable, clinically tested ingredients, the optimal form and dose of each ingredient, pharmaceutical-grade manufacturing, testing of raw ingredients and finished products, and for every purchase you make, they donate vitamins to kids in need. It's a supplement company that's voluntarily putting themselves under more scrutiny and holding themselves to higher standards. And look at me, I've been consistently taking their uh, immune support and their multivitamin over the last six to eight weeks or so. And not only do I feel great, but the proof is in the pudding, right? I've avoided getting any kind of illness this past fall and so far this winter. Get 15% off your order with code JASON15. It's not case sensitive. JASON can be lowercase or capitalized. Jason15 at Prevenex.com. That's P-R-E-V-I-N-E-X dot com with code Jason15 for 15% off your order. We're also supported by Athletic Greens, the health and wellness company that makes AG1. I love this stuff. It's the most popular greens mix available with 75 vitamins and minerals, prebiotics, probiotics, antioxidants, and adaptogens. To make taking control of your health this year even easier, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D, which is very important in the winter months when you're not getting as much sunlight, and they're going to throw in five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash Jason, and you can choose from a single purchase if you just want to try it, or sign up for a monthly subscription to make this part of your ongoing healthy nutrition plan. See all the details at athleticgreens.com slash Jason. And now that I'm combining AG1 with Prevenex, I'm like the Incredible Hulk these days. I'll keep you updated on whether or not I get sick in every upcoming episode. All right, my guest today is Sam Murphy. She is a journalist, the author of eight books, and a running coach. She pens the longstanding Murphy's Lore column in Runner's World magazine and has written for numerous national newspapers and magazines for over two decades. Sam has raced everything from the 5K to ultra-distance, ultra-marathons. She holds a sports and exercise science degree and is an England athletics qualified endurance coach. She just released her newest book, Run Your Best Marathon, Your Trusted Guide to Training and Racing Better. In this episode, we explore common running myths, half-truths, and misconceptions that could potentially derail your marathon training. I've long thought that simply avoiding mistakes is one of the fastest ways to improve. Sam delivers in this episode. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Sam Murphy. Hey, Sam. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jason. Nice to be here. 
Well, I'm excited to chat with you. You have written quite the book on marathon training, marathon racing, marathon recovery. It's perhaps one of the most comprehensive marathon training books that I've seen recently, which just really goes into detail on almost everything you'd like to know about how to train for a marathon, how to choose the right course. I mean, you've really left no stone unturned for those runners who want to have a great experience. Oh, that's great to hear you say that. That was That's pretty much what I was setting out to do. Um, I felt that I'd actually written a book about marathons before, um, but it was a long time ago. I think it was actually 2004. And at that time, the marathon market was very different and much smaller. And so a book that was just sort of about the marathon that could be for everybody was, was, you know, an acceptable idea. And so anybody who hadn't even run a 5k before could pick the book up and, and, you know, read, read the advice and, and, and supposedly kind of end up running the marathon. But over those ensuing years of more experience of coaching, more experience of running myself, I think things have, have got to be more nuanced than that. And, you know, the market has grown. There's much more, um, you know, then the advice that is being given needs to be more sp- specific to different groups of people. And I think what I've found was happening was that the advice that is given out at the kind of elite level by the, by the high profile coaches is just kind of extrapolated down um, so a lot of the principles are still, um, you know, presented as being the same, but they're just kind of made a bit smaller. And, and I was finding that just doesn't really work. You know, you have to kind of approach it in a different way altogether rather than um, just sort of make, make minimize the whole kind of training process um, to fit somebody who isn't running, you know, 100 plus miles a week or whatever. <laughs> Not everyone can do that. Well, exactly. I mean, you know, a lot of a lot of us have these inconvenient things like, you know, relationships and and jobs and uh, you know, family commitments, and and we we can't put all of our time and all of our energy into running, and you know, whatever that those limitations that we have have to be built into the training program that that we put ourselves on, and I think that is one of the biggest reasons why so many people fall at the first hurdle you know they as soon as they're starting that big build up it's such a steep curve that they're on in a lot of these kind of off the shelf programs that um it's just the overload is too much and people break down or burn out very very quickly yeah and i think you know one of the things that i always try to work on in my coaching practice and in any of the content that i create is How do we make all this training work in your life? Because, you know, like we were discussing, not everyone's going to be running 110 miles a week. Not everyone, you know, has that luxury or or even that physical ability. And I think what you've done with your book is, is really create this very accessible approach to the marathon where, you know, you can be a, a working single dad and you can go and train for a marathon and you can make it happen. So I definitely appreciate that because I work with a lot of adult runners who, you know, have those, you know, very annoying, inconvenient uh, time sucks, like <laughs> having a significant other or a job, you know, those things that are just really getting in the way of their running. <laughs> so we certainly have to make it work. Yeah, you'd be forgiven for thinking when you read some of the programs of all the things that you have to be doing to kind of keep up the, you know, the, the supplementary stuff to your running and, you know, attending to your nutrition and your core training and your stretching and your strength training and all the different types of sessions, you, you know, you'd be forgiven for thinking it's actually impossible to do all of that and, and have a, uh, you know, a normal life at the same time. And so I think we've got to kind of drill down into what is really important and, and that really requires us looking at our own lives and at ourselves and our strengths and our weaknesses. And I've, I did, I've got a chapter in the book called All About You because I think that that is a real missing part of the, of the jigsaw. It's often left out. You know, it, it's like people go and choose a marathon program like going to the supermarket and saying, mm, yes, I'd like the, the sub 430 and picking that one off the shelf and then hoping that by following that, that's going to produce the the sub 430 time. And I think that program 
doesn't know anything about you. It doesn't know about your injury, injury propensity or your, what motivates you, what sort of runs you're good at and not so good at, how many times you maybe have never even run a, a race ever in your life, you know, all of that stuff. The program doesn't know that. So it's just illogical to think that everybody who does this program here is going to result in, you know, the same, the same sort of finish time. So I just wanted to do away with that finish time thing and the sub 3.30 and the sub 4 and the blah, blah, blah. I just wanted to take that out and just say, let's look at you and your current place and then let's look at how we can get you to the best of your potential over the time that we've got available. And then what you get at the end of it is what you get at the end of it. And, you know, I can't guarantee what the time will be, but it will be the best that you could have possibly done at that time, given those limitations. Right. And, and I think your book is really interesting because it, it essentially is a book that dispels this myth that everyone has to follow, you know, a, a very formal training plan to a T with absolutely no modifications for their own lives. And if they aren't able to do that, well, you just can't run that marathon. And you, you do a really great job of modifying marathon training for the average person who has all those other responsibilities. And, you know, I, I've always been someone who said, you know, a training plan is sort of like a set of directions to your final destination. You can take detours, you can go off script a little bit and still arrive at your final destination. And in fact, even as someone who, who sort of makes a living by creating training plans for runners, I'm the first person to say that training plan is just a roadmap and you can certainly modify it I don't think I've ever followed a training plan myself where I didn't start to change things a little bit, even in the first week of that training plan. So sure, uh, I yeah. really think that's, I think that's highly appreciated from my perspective, because I know that runners need that kind of flexibility. Uh, and Sam, I thought it would be fun today to, to talk a little bit more about some of these marathon myths that, that people tend to believe that I think often hold them back from achieving what they want to achieve in the marathon, potentially holding them back from even doing their first marathon. Um, and so I'd like to discuss some of these fun myths and get your perspective on them. Uh, I think, you know, the first one we've already talked about a little bit, you know, you've got to follow a high level training plan and, and follow it to a T and not deviate it from it whatsoever. That's obviously untrue. And I, I really like how you've included that chapter in your book to discuss exactly that. Um, what do you say to the person who says or believes that they just can't run a marathon? I don't have the body for it. I don't have the time. I don't have the physical fitness or athleticism. What would you say to that runner? Well, that's an interesting one, Jason. I think I do think that, you know, bar a few very, you know, obvious kind of structural limitations that, that some bodies you know, will, will have. I think it is true that, that everybody can run a marathon, but what I think often is, is that sort of goes wrong is that people sort of embark on that program, you know, the 16 week program or the 18 week or, or 12 week or whatever it is, you know, out of runner's world magazine or whatever. And they haven't really built enough of a base before they start. And so that means that that first few weeks, the the the, the incline that, that they are having to climb up is so steep because they haven't even run nine miles, say, for a long run before. And so they have to start at nine miles. And then that's the longest run they've ever done. Then the next week they have to run 10 miles. And then the next week they have to run 11 miles. And, and this, this kind of really steep incline simply to get to the point where they're running you know, a half marathon after maybe, you know, six to eight weeks into the program, then you've only got a very short time to get a little bit sort of higher up the mileage scale than that. And everything just happens too intensely and too quickly. And so a statement that I've made in the book, which I know won't be popular with everybody, is that I think you should be comfortable running a half marathon before you start thinking about running a marathon. And I mean, comfortable as in, you know, the, the, it's something that you've done a few times. It doesn't have to be in a race, but that you can go out tomorrow and go and do that. And if that in itself is a massive challenge now, 
it's not the right time to do the marathon. It doesn't mean you can't do one, but it's just why make it really hard on yourself? Because the other thing is, is people who are building up at that such a sort of a, a, a sort of steep incline um, are going to be out there for really long times when they're doing those long runs. And I've come across people, I'm sure you have too, you know, when they're out doing a long run in, you know, week nine or 10, where they're saying, oh yeah, well, I had to do 20 miles. So I was out there for, you know, four and a half hours, four hours, 45 for a long run. And and those that length of time on your feet is going to be absolutely exhausting. And there needs to be a point where you're just going to cap that long run distance and not go by, you know, not go by, um, you have to go by time, but just limit it at, at, you know, maybe three or three hours, 15, something like that. Because, you know, that's when people talk about doing 20 mile runs, they're, they're, they're looking back, you know, that all comes from the elite, the elite training sort of, um, history. And, and that would typically be taking, you know, a couple of hours, not four and a half hours. And, and that's one of those problems, like I mentioned earlier, about the extrapolation of just saying, yep, everybody should do this. We'll just kind of, you know, translate this for the for the less accomplished runner. I think this is arguably one of the most important issues in marathon training because it affects almost everybody. It affects even competitive runners and it affects runners who have never done a marathon before. And that's just rushing the training and really you know, thinking that they can go from, you know, that nine mile long run to, you know, maybe 18 to 20 miles, whatever it might be in the course of a training cycle. And this really speaks to the idea that, you know, something I say often is that there's no couch to marathon program. There's a couch (laughs) to 5k program, but there's a very good reason why you can't go find a couch to marathon program. And that's for exactly the reason that you were discussing previously, which is you need to train for not just the marathon, you need to train for marathon training. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. You need to already be capable to a certain extent. Um, and you know, your, your kind of benchmark is let's be comfortable running a half marathon, 13.1 miles before we start the marathon cycle. I'm a, I'm a little bit less aggressive. I like to see runners with at least a double digit long run. Let's at least be comfortable running 10 or 11 miles. I think that's the bare minimum, but Ultimately, I think slightly more is better. You know, if you're comfortable running 15 miles for a long run, I don't really think you're going to struggle with marathon training. I think you're going to pick up on it very well. And going from 15 to 20 miles is probably not going to be that big of a jump. Um, One question I had for you about this is, you know, I think a lot of us have heard that before you run a marathon, you should try to run a 20 mile long run. And I think that's a good sort of general benchmark, but at the same time, there's a lot of cases where that rule just completely falls apart and it has to do with the amount of time that you're running. Do you have a certain, uh, uh, limit on a long run when it comes to the time on your feet that you're spending? I do. I mean, I think again, it will partly depend on whether somebody is completely new to running, um, or they've had a little bit more experience because sometimes people have got quite a good level of experience, but they're just, you know, not hugely fast. And so then they're going to be able to take a little bit more time on their feet because they've done that before, um, than somebody who is coming to that distance for the first time. But I usually say somewhere between sort of three and, and three and a quarter hours is about how long I would want someone to do their long, their long run, uh, to sort of cap it at that distance. However, I think um, this approach that is so commonly seen in marathon programs where you start at this low distance and then you build it up and you build it up and you build it up and up and up. And, you know, and then what happens is that your longest ever run happens before your longest ever race. And there's a small period in between the taper, you know, where you recover from that. But really, I like to see people getting to that peak marathon long run distance a lot earlier in the program because they've reached that point. They haven't had to rush up this really, really steep slope to get there. They can then back off and they can focus a little bit more on building the, uh, you know, the, the sort of threshold pace and, and some speed and start to build some quality training in there without having to keep going with this really exhausting long run at the same time. Then come back, revisit that distance again. Um, back off again and come back and start to throw some 
quality training into the long run as well as it gets nearer to the race so that you're doing a little bit more of that long run um, at marathon goal, goal pace. Um, and I think that's probably one of the biggest differences between the programs that I've, I've put in, in the book um, is that you don't get to your, your peak long run as the sort of last long run before the taper. It, ha- it happens a bit earlier into the, into the training cycle than that. I think a lot of runners might hear this and think that this makes the training more advanced. Oh, I'm going to get to my longer long run even earlier. I'm going to work on all this different type of speed work. I'm going to put quality running within my long run. Ooh, that sounds like an advanced move. And, and I think it's actually easier. I think it's actually easier to, to go with this approach than the more traditional approach where you spend most of the training cycle building your long run fairly aggressively from a somewhat of a low mileage long run because the injury risk is a lot higher. You're, you're really just rushing the training and you're not going to have as much fitness at the end of that cycle as you would it with this more varied approach. And it's just sort of like, you know, I would rather study for 30 minutes a day for two months leading up to a big exam rather than an hour a night for one week leading up to the exam. It's sort of like that approach. It's cramming for the marathon. And when you cram for a marathon, bad things can happen. Your injury risk is going to be higher. Your performance is going to be worse. And I honestly think you're just not going to have as much fun out there on the race course. Because if you want a marathon to feel good, if you want to have a good time, I think it's in your best interest to be in as good of shape as possible, because then it won't be as stressful for you. Absolutely. And the confidence that you get from having already hit quite a, you know, decent long run distances earlier on in the program, um, you know, there's not this sort of daunting sense of this, you know, you do 16 miles and it's really exhausting. And then you've got to do... 18 and then you've still got this big 20 coming up you know and it's all sort of it feels very um yeah sort of intimidating and I think the confidence you get from doing um longer runs sort of earlier in the cycle because you know that you're going to get some time where you're not going to have to go out and do an even even longer one you're going to get a little bit of time off from that before you come back to that so I agree with you that it is uh sort of a kind of more approachable way of training. And I also think mentally it's the variety that you get, you know, the focus is um, is changing throughout the program rather than it just all going in one direction. You know, you're bringing in little aspects of, of other um, training attributes on along the way. And I think that makes it sort of more varied and, and more interesting. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's just, more fun to do, right? And it is almost the difference between how a pro runner might approach their training and how someone who's just going to try to get this marathon in, you know, in the next couple months, you know, by hell or high water, where the professional would probably be already very comfortable running a substantial long run, their mileage is already relatively high. And so it's almost like training a bit more like a professional, but scaled way back to a very approachable level. Uh, and I want to hit on one thing that you said earlier too, you know, when I asked about this myth that some people believe, oh, I can't run a marathon. You did say that there are some structural limitations that people might have that would prevent them from being able to train or race a marathon. Can you talk about some of those, you know, like what are the, the scenarios or the very specific limitations where you might advise a runner, Hey, you know, it may not be a good idea to go for a marathon. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think it would, it, it's often things which have been caused by, by previous injuries. So, um, people who have got very limited ankle mobility is a big one, um, which could have been through, um, break, breaks, um, earlier fractures. Um, and sometimes, uh, bones have been sort of fused together in the, in that healing process. Part of it is, you know, yeah, we've had to sort of fuse this bone and, and people had just have not got that that mobility through the ankle, so they're just not able to sort of roll through the foot well. Um, and really, it is joint joint issues. So it might be um, people who've had um, knee or or hip surgery replacements as well. 
I mean, that, that said, I do know people who have had um, arthroscopies and people who've had hip replacements who've run marathons. I'm not sure I know anyone who's had a knee replacement and run a marathon. I think if they did, their surgeon would probably be chasing them most of the way. That's a good incentive to run faster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I'm I'm sort of talking about the bodies that have, have um, you know, got got asymmetries which have been caused by something um that's happened to the body really that's that's created sort of a joint that just wasn't doesn't move as it's as it's meant to um it, it's quite hard to to be too specific about um you know you wouldn't want to rule anybody out because um equally i know i've worked with someone who with scoliosis who's you know run very well lots of lots of um uh, strength and and uh mobility work was necessary in order to to you know sort of even out some of the the uh asymmetries and and imbalances that their scoliosis caused but um it's certainly something that you need to to think about if you're going to be you know raising your game and going for a marathon if you have had uh, injuries or or sort of surgical kind of interventions particularly on the on the in the lower limb yeah, for sure. I, I'm kind of with you. I, I hate to uh, count anybody out from the marathon because I've seen people overcome amazing adversity to finish 26.2 miles. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's, it's very likely that with enough drive and ambition and a good physical therapist and strength training program, you probably can overcome a lot and likely run that marathon. But like you said, it does require you to up your game. It requires you to not cut corners really seek the massive help commitment of, level 100%. Yeah, really really seek out the help of a, a good physical therapist or strength coach depending on what your limitation might be. So, even if you think you can't run a marathon, you probably can with just a little bit of extra strategic work. Um now Sam, I I have occasionally heard a complaint about running marathons and this one usually comes from the non-marathoner crowd that if you're someone who runs marathons you are aging yourself faster than you have to. That just the act of training for and racing marathons hastens the aging process. What are your thoughts on that? That's an interesting one. I mean, I guess that's to do with, um, you know, the idea that, that that running creates oxidation in the body, um, particularly, you know, aerobic level running is creating oxidation and oxidation is associated with with aging. But But at the same time that running is creating oxidation in the body. It's also, on the other hand, stimulating um, the release of more antioxidants. And so it, it's not increasing the sort of aging process in that way. It is actually, you know, it's creating a demand on the body and that demand acts as a stimulus for the body to respond to that extra demand. I mean, it's really how fitness works in, in you know, lots of other aspects of the same. You know, you create... Um, a challenge that is higher than the body can currently cope with. And so if you do that at the right level and you repeat it often enough, then the body says, right, I need to be able to cope with this in the future because she's going to make me keep doing this. And so then the body responds by, by you know, making changes in, in the, you know, enzymes and hormones and, and tissue structure and actually allows you to do that thing better um, as as time passes, and that's that really is the kind of essence of of, of overload and, and developing better fitness. Um, so I think the same is true in terms of of the, the factors that that come into um, aging, and and the, I mean, what I have done, which is is quite an unusual thing in terms of marathon training, is um, I have included um, some sprint work within the base phase, um, and. I think that kind of ties in with it, with this sort of aging issue a little bit, because what we do know is that as we get older, that we do begin to lose muscle mass and, and running kind of, uh, you know, marathon pace running doesn't seem to be enough to prevent that atrophy, that loss of, of, of muscle, um, muscle, uh, volume and, and tissue. Um, it's really only, I mean, as you all know, of course, yourself, Jason, it's, it's a huge amount of it's to do with, with strength training. But in terms of running, um, 
absolute maximal pace running, sprinting, whether that's on the flat or whether that is on little uphill sprints, which some uh, listeners might have, have been become familiar with that have been talked about quite a lot um, over the last few years. Um, just very short uphill sprints are a really good way of kind of creating the stimulus that keeps muscle tissue strong and 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 develops that that um, you know prevents that decline really. Um, and so people might think, well, that's a bit weird, you know. I'm not going to need to sprint, so why would you put sprinting into a marathon program? Um, but putting it in that base phase, so you know, you're you're there's no kind of challenging threshold work there's no vo2 max sessions in this in this part of the program it's all just about the easy miles and you're just kind of getting used to running it on a consistent regular basis so you're not taxing your body too much in 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 anything intense and so just peppering the program with some of these little sprints is the perfect time to do it because they're using a different energy system you know they're, they're creating a different stimulus but they don't really leave you fatigued in the way that doing a track session would you know going around doing like 400s or 800s very tiring but you know this kind of thing it's very short intense it helps with uh your your running form and it's just really really helping to kind of prevent that muscle kind of atrophy that is an inevitable part of of the aging process yeah i think that's that's really important to discuss it's it's both you know, what is happening at the cellular level within your body when you do certain types of training. And when we talk about oxidation and the release of stress hormones like cortisol, you know, part of that is just the normal stress adaptation process that's required if you want to get stronger, improve your endurance, build more mitochondria in your cells. You know, you have to uh, experience some level of stress. And I think this idea that you know, oh, running makes you age faster is because you've looked at some of the the first order effects of hard exercise. Oh, you know, you you're more sore after a run, like you've released all of these, you know, hormones that are bad for muscle growth and all that. But they are the precursors to the adaptation process. And it's almost like we have to zoom out a little bit further just wait a little bit longer until the body builds back a little bit stronger with a little bit more endurance. And then you're a little bit more capable. You know, like you said, the next time you go and do something silly, like try to run 20 miles, your body is <laughs> a little bit more prepared for that. And without that stress, you're never going to get better. So I think it's really important to, to recognize that those ill effects are actually needed and wanted as part of the training process. Uh, and then, of course, you know, with you talking about sprints and strength training, you know, that kind of talks to the fact that there's good training and there's bad training, right? You can train for a marathon in a way that is not very respectful of your body, and it probably can make you feel a lot worse and, and maybe hasten the aging process somewhat, uh, especially if you're not really recovering from run to run. But I think one of the other great things about those those uphill sprints you were talking about or even even flat sprints is the hormonal side of that. You know that it gives your body such a different stimulus that it prompts your body to release different hormones than you would get if you did a long run or a, a threshold workout. And I think that's also important to counteract some of that aging process too. Yeah, I mean and muscle, you know, muscles work you know there's that sort of that cyclical kind of um cycling in and out of different muscle fibers and um an analogy i've used in in the book is is that yes you don't you know you're not going to sprint maybe you're going to sprint to the finish line of course um or maybe you'll need to just do a, a little kind of sprint to get around someone on a narrow part of the course or something like that but really the real benefit of 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 getting those um fast twitch fibers on board is that 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 cycling process, you're just getting more hands on deck. And I was saying it's a bit like a, you know, a temping agency. Imagine your body's a temping agency. And, you know, when the workload gets really, um, really hard and, and bigger that, you know, you need to kind of call in some temps to come and, and, and take some of that workload and help out. And you, you've actually just increased the pool of available workers by getting those muscle cells stimulated and, and switched on. I love that analogy, Sam. I might, I might be stealing that and using that in the future. I think that's just brilliant. And it, it really highlights the fact that 
you know, your body is such a complex system. You know, we can't just run slow all the time and and expect to be good at at any race or for that matter, run fast all the time. You know, it's a very complex system and we need to be working on different energy systems, be working on recruiting different muscle fiber types. And, and that is really going to be making us into a, a better athlete. Now, another big myth I wanted to get your thoughts on, uh, this one comes across my coaching desk on the regular, and that's these runners who uh, haven't run a marathon before, but they have some experience, but they're terrified of injuries. They think that if they're going to train for a marathon, they are undoubtedly going to get hurt. Injuries are just an inevitable part of the training process. And this idea is holding them back from registering for their first marathon and training for it. They just think the volume is going to be too high or the whole training process is going to be so advanced that their body's not going to be able to handle it. Do you think injuries are inevitable in marathon training and, and how can we address this? Yeah, it's a really, really good question. I absolutely don't think that they're, they're inevitable. Um, it all depends on the approach, you know, going back to this idea of, you know, the traditional marathon program where, you know, you've got this really steep mountain to climb just to get from where you are now, um, to where you need to be. And you've got this kind of quite contained time period in which to do that. Well, that's kind of setting you yourself up for injury right there. <laughs> you know, you are, um, trying to fit in an awful lot into a short period of time if you are if you're not suitably uh trained to train for the marathon like you were saying earlier you know it's almost like you need to kind of do a training program to get yourself fit for the marathon training program because it is going to be a short period of time um so i think taking away that 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 pressure on yourself by being well prepared, like, like we were saying, you know, maybe 10, 11, 12 miles is really comfortable distance for you at the time you start the program. You're, you're already, you know, really helping yourself avoid injuries. So I think that's, that's one part of it. Um, another part of it is that people's mentality when they are in the marathon training block, it tends to, to sort of slip into panic very, very quickly. And so when an injury, it's not really an injury, but, you know, the, the beginnings of an injury um, start up, you know, it's like, I can't stop. I can't stop because I've got to get to 20 miles by week 10 or whatever, you know. And so they'll just kind of keep plowing on through this thing, which start, you know, it's just a little bit of a niggle in the, the Achilles or a bit of a sawney. Keep on running through it. Keep following the program doggedly. Whatever it says you've got to do, just keep on doing it. And then that thing that was just a little little kind of niggle is going to turn into that full-blown injury that you could have avoided if you just stepped back, took a little bit of time out, just addressed it, had a sports massage, maybe, you know, getting to a check over to make sure that you've got, you know, any strength um, deficits that you need to work on, that kind of thing. I think that, that, that sort of um, head in the sand approach is what leads to so many injuries during marathon training and and we can avoid that um there's a lovely term which is that if you listen to the whispers then you won't have to hear the screams and i think a lot of us are very good at kind of just ignoring those whispers drowning them out and and then we, we wait until it's much later on and we have to then put up with the screams I, li I like that analogy too. Another one I might be stealing from you. Well, I stole that from someone. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're great analogies that really help us wrap our head around this topic. Um, and I think it's, I think it's such an interesting perspective because I see rushing your training, uh, and, and trying to, you know, get up to about 20 miles and get that long run distance up. I look at that as almost the same psychological phenomenon as someone who, gets a slight niggle during marathon training and thinks that all of their training is ruined. They're not going to be able to build their long run at the same, you know, rate as their training plan says they should be. It's almost like this, this inability to slow down, this inability to sort of take the longer term view on your training. And, and I think that longer term outlook can be so helpful when it comes to injury prevention, because it it prevents you from taking those risks with your running that often lead to injuries, you know, going out for that long run when you do have a niggle only because you think you have to, because your training plan says you do. 
Can you speak to this idea of, of being a little bit more flexible with your training so that you're not rushing it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very much that idea that the program, it, it, it's again, you know, that the program knows you, the program knows best. It knows, you know, above everything else. It knows that you have to do everything that is written on this page. Um, and that's the only way, you know, it's like, it, it's, it's almost a sort of slightly mystical thing, isn't it? That this, if, that if you do anything that is not on that program, or you miss something that's on it, that everything is going to fall apart. And when we just step back and, and think about that, you know, we can easily see that that's just not, just not the case. I mean, you probably, um, like me, have not, have done a number of marathons where you, you know, did you ever do a marathon, in fact, where you did every single thing that was on the program that you had written yourself or that you were following? Of course not. No way. <laughs> no. I mean, that's right. And, and you know, you'll you get people sort of, you know, I've worked with people and they'll come, come and sort of say, well, yeah, my, my foot was hurting, but, you know, I had, I had my 18 miler on the plan, so I just did it. And now, I, you know, now I can't walk. And you're like, ah, you know, why did you do that? And um, so I think it's just much, it is much more like bringing that, 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 that bringing the chapter that I, I mentioned that I wanted to get in the book about all about you. It's just remembering that, you know, you are part of this process and your needs are part of this process. And if your body needs rest, but the program says don't rest, it's, it's you that you need to listen to. It's your body that you need to listen to. If you're, you know, you've got a niggle and you're concerned about that, you know, address that specific thing and then rearrange what's around. And if you miss a couple of things, well, you know, we'll let everybody into the, the secret that programs are always designed with, you know, with an assumption that not every single thing in the entire plan is going to be ticked off. You know, we, we, we kind of know that when we write these plans. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I write what I call perfect ideal plans, but you don't have to follow it perfectly to, to get there. Um, I, I want to ask you another another myth, and, and this one this one's a bit of a fun one, and, and it kind of speaks to this fact that you know us runners we can be a little bit type A. We want to we want to <laughs> execute the plan perfectly. We never want to get injured. Um, and there's some runners who who really want to abstain from all alcohol when they're training for a marathon. Now, I live in Denver, Colorado. We have a lot of breweries around here. I like myself a good beer. Can can we responsibly enjoy a little bit of alcohol when we're marathon training? I think we can. I mean, I I have to confess here that I uh, run a, a weekly group run from a brewery. <laughs> <laughs> You'd fit in well in Denver. <laughs> so I'm kind of yeah. So uh, you know, we meet at the brewery, we go for a run, and then we come back and um, we drink beer. Um, but in fact, the brewery very kindly um, created us uh, a beer that they've called the Runners Brew, which is um, just one point. 6% alcohol. And that's absolutely fantastic. It's just the perfect, just enough to kind of get a little bit of a, a, of a relaxing buzz, but not so much alcohol that you wake up feeling really dehydrated and jaded the next day. But yeah, to go back to the point, I mean, we're already, um, lots of, I'm not, I'm not going to argue for al alcohol being, you know, a kind of an elixir of health for, for sure. You know, that that's, there's just not any, any evidence to set, to suggest that it is, but by being regularly active, we're already kind of um, counteracting a lot of the effects of alcohol. There's been some studies on this, you know, sort of showing that the, the people who are regularly active um, kind of negate some of the uh, detrimental health effects of alcohol. And I think, you know, it's, it's very much um, an, an issue of, you know, if you're going to deny yourself everything that you enjoy doing, just all in, you know, in aid of your of your marathon, I think you're going to end up being, um, you know, quite uptight and quite, um, you know, un, unhappy and, and maybe just a little bit kind of overly focused on this this one thing. And you know, most of us um, who are, who are in in this conversation, I imagine uh, we're we're not trying to trying for the Olympic trials. We're not. Um, we want to do the best that we can, but we are people with other things in our lives. And I think the idea that anybody should prescriptively tell you, "Oh, you must not do 
that you must not drink alcohol, you must not, um, you know, eat chocolate cake um, because you're trying to do a marathon. What are you doing? You know, you're trying to train for a marathon. You shouldn't do that. I, I don't think anybody's really got the right to tell to tell people to do to do that. And I definitely will enjoy um, a beer or a glass of wine, you know, a couple of times a week. Um, and I, I don't think that I would want to be the person advising other runners not to do that for the sake of their marathon success. Oh, I feel like a politician. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's fascinating. I, I, I don't think I've heard this before that running negates some of the effects, negative effects of alcohol. So, you know, hey, Sam Murphy said that I can uh, drink as much booze as I want as long as I'm running a lot, right? Is that the <laughs> lesson here? <laughs> I'll find you the study, Jason. I'll find you the study because uh, I uh, I did write something about it when when it came out, and uh, you know I found found it you know quite a, an interesting and, and uh, heartening piece of research. So I will find that for you, and uh, and I'll share it with you. Yeah, we'll include it in the show notes. I think it's amazing. It's it's uh, music to many runners' ears, but of course. Uh, as long as you're being responsible with it, as long as uh, I think the number one negative effect might be the disruption to your sleep, which is really important for recovery. So for any runner who's training really hard right now, probably want to limit your alcohol intake so that you can still get a good night's sleep that same night. Yeah, definitely. Sleep is really important. And also, yeah, it's, you know, the day that you've done your long run is not the day to then go and, you know, drink five pints of beer. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, that's when you, you've created, you know, this, this, uh, um, series of, 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 uh, breakdowns of different, um, substances and you've got, um, you know, metabolites and inflammation in the body and that that repair process is all part of the kind of progress of your, of your fitness. And, um, so, you know, the dehydration and the, and the, effects on, on growth hormone that come from from heavy drinking but it's interesting you know that a lot of the studies that have been done on on the effects of drinking have used incredibly high volumes of alcohol i mean the sort of volume where you really would be on a massive binge i mean it's not about going and having like one or two beers after a run i mean it's it, when i looked into this um the, some of the studies were just you know crazy amounts of alcohol that i just don't think anyone who's interested in in their health and, and their running would really be drinking anyway. Yeah. You, you, it's always funny looking at how those studies were put together because, yeah, it, first of all, they're usually with like a handful of college-aged men, which certainly skews the results. But uh, <laughs> Not yeah, known for their drinking, of course. <laughs> no, no, never, never. I would, I would never run a Saturday race and then go out with my friends in college. That never happened, Sam. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it, it's really interesting because some of those, the volumes used, you know, it's like six, seven, eight plus individual alcoholic drinks. And, you know, I, I think for a college aged guy, like, yeah, you're probably going out and, and having too much fun. But for most adults, that is a little bit much. Yeah, yeah. Well, this was really fun, Sam, and uh, I I'm glad that you're on board with a little bit of responsible drinking because I think uh, it'd be hard to live here in Denver and not enjoy the brewery scene while you're training. <laughs> um, your book, Run Your Best Marathon, Your Trusted Guide to Training and Racing Better, is, is such a comprehensive look at modifying marathon training to work for you. So thanks so much for releasing this into the world. I'll have uh, a link to your book in the show notes on the strength running site, but Sam, thanks so much for, for joining me and, and talking more about the marathon and, and all these myths that sometimes hold us runners back. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for listening, my friends. If you found value in this episode, I would so appreciate a review in Apple music or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you want to keep listening to this podcast, support our sponsors who help me keep the lights on over here at strength running HQ. Use their links and discount codes to support the Strength Running Podcast. First, go get yourself 15% off anything at Prevenex.com with code Jason15. After resisting most supplements for the better part of my life, I'm cautiously changing my tune. 
I'm less than a year from being a master's runner. And in my personal life, I'm trying to optimize for longevity. I want to be my healthiest self for as long as possible. And I'm excited to partner with Prevenex to make that happen. Prevenex is very unique in that they hold themselves to standards that aren't required in the supplement industry. They use the most bioavailable, clinically effective ingredients. They do raw ingredient testing and then finished product testing. And they use the proper amounts of vitamins and other ingredients in their products at levels where studies actually show you get clinical benefits. The science is on their side. And I love how they hold themselves more accountable than other supplement companies. Not only that, they have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and they donate vitamins to kids in need for every order of vitamins that you make. But most importantly is how I feel on a day-to-day basis. I genuinely feel better the more consistent I am with their multivitamin and their immune support product. I've avoided strep throat that my seven-year-old had a couple weeks ago, whatever weird cough my five-year-old just had, and I just feel more energized during the day. I have more clarity and I feel more productive. I just feel like I'm playing life with a cheat code that levels me up by 20%. You guys know that I'm practical, pragmatic, and I love to focus on what works. I believe Prevenex works, and I hope you experience the same benefits as I do. Use code JASON15, no capitalization required, at Prevenex.com. You can try their immune support that I'm currently taking, or you can explore other options like Neurofy, which is a vitamin, carb, and protein combination shake, Joint Health, and more. That's Jason15 for 15% off your order at Prevenex.com. I'm also grateful for the support of Athletic Greens, the health and wellness company that makes comprehensive daily nutrition super simple. I personally struggle with eating healthy. What can I say? I love convenience, so I'm finding their product AG1 really helpful to give me 75 vitamins and minerals and whole food sourced ingredients, including a greens superfood blend, probiotics, prebiotics, adaptogens, and more. AG1 helps me fill in any nutrition gaps in my diet because I know I have them, and it gives me a nice boost of energy and focus throughout the day. But what I love about AG1 is that it actually changes. Over the last decade, they've made more than 50 different improvements to their formula based on all the latest research. They want to make those nutrients more absorbable, and they want to make their product more rigorous with the third-party testing that they do. Go to athleticgreens.com Jason, and you'll see the great offer they've put together for our podcast listeners. You'll get a year's worth of free vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1 with your first purchase. You can sign up for a single shipment or for a monthly drop if you want to make AG1 a part of your regular healthy lifestyle. That's athleticgreens.com slash Jason to sign up today. Okay, that's our show, my friends. Support the Strength Running Podcast by using our sponsor links, reviewing the podcast, or getting a training program for yourself at strengthrunning.com slash coaching. Don't forget, I'm always here to help you. Don't ever hesitate to reach out to me through the Strength Running site, or you can message me on Twitter or Instagram. My handle is JasonFitz1. We'll be in touch soon. 